Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Good morning. Uh, We have all experienced a moment where expectations did not meet reality. Maybe it was a time when you ordered an item online and something completely different showed up. Maybe the production process got something terribly wrong. Or maybe their intent was to deceive you. Or maybe somebody was just being lazy and not doing a very good job. Maybe you tried something new, thinking it was going to be amazing, cute, right? And it turned into a monstrosity. (laughs) Or maybe you walked into church this morning thinking that you were going to hear a wise and thoughtful uh, message from Chris Barris, and now there's this girl on stage, and is it too late to leave now? The answer is yes. I I can see you, actually. For me, my most recent expectations did not meet reality moment was in harvesting our spring garden. I was really excited because our carrots completely flopped last year, but this year they were looking really, really good. But I learned that a nice, nice lush top does not necessarily indicate a robust carrot on the bottom. <laughs> True story. We have all at some point or another assumed that we were getting one thing and ended up with something completely different. And since the end of April, we've slowly been walking through the Gospel of Luke, following Jesus from the start of his earthly ministry as he encounters different obstacles and struggles and seeing how they relate to our daily lives. And last week we talked about how Jesus performed a miracle where he proved that he had power over death. He raised a young man back to life. And we love that story because it says that Jesus is not only with us in our dark moments, but he also has the power to answer our deepest prayers and perform miracles. But the story that follows this is not really a story of triumph. Instead, it illustrates our frustration when Jesus does not meet our expectations. Now, the Bible is a lot like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You may not have grown up with the first edition comics or ever stood in line for the newest issue of Captain America, but at this point, pretty much everyone knows the basic premise, right? And so Jesus, kind of like Iron Man, is a name that you've at least heard before. And you may not always remember Black Widow's real name. Good job. Or the name of Thor's hammer. I just really wanted to hear you guys try and say that. But the general stories uh, and characters have made their way into the mainstream consciousness. But like the MCU, we can't just expect to drop right into the middle of Avengers Endgame and have any clue what's going on whatsoever. So we're going to have to rewind back to a moment in the beginning of Luke. Right after Mary is told that she is pregnant with God's baby, Jesus, the Savior of the world, she goes and she visits her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is also pregnant with a child that will become John the Baptist. And when Mary enters the door of the house, John, in Elizabeth's womb, leaps. Like, it's a, it's a visceral reaction that he has. And his mother, Elizabeth, exclaims that the reason her child leapt is because she felt the presence of the Messiah. 
And so John and Jesus have this really interesting connection in their past. Their family even, probably second cousins or something like that. But we don't have any record in the Bible beyond this initial meeting of them actually growing up together or even knowing each other. But years down the road, later in Luke 3, John has grown up to be an adult and we're told that the word of God came to John. And he is told to preach baptism for the forgiveness of sins and to prepare the way of the Lord. And John did that. He was a real-life prophet who spoke authoritatively. And droves of people came from all around to hear him teach and to be baptized by him. And John was kind of a weird guy. He was a bit eccentric, but he was very charismatic. And people start to think that maybe he is something special. Luke 3, 15 through 16 says, As the people were in expectation, there's that word again, and all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So they're thinking, hey, This guy's kind of weird. He's preaching the word of the Lord. Maybe he's the Messiah that God promised. And John is telling them, no, 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 it's not me. Someone else is coming. They had an expectation of who Christ was going to be, and John is pointing them forward to something bigger and better that's on the way. And John is a very impressive guy. His stat block is, like, super high. But John did not have something supernatural. He didn't have a panoramic understanding of what was happening. He was following God's call on his life, even if he didn't have the whole picture. So he was living out in the desert, baptizing people into repentance, telling them of the coming Messiah without fully knowing who that Messiah was or how he would present himself. So we see from John's life that faith comes before proof. John lived by faith. He was probably told the story a hundred times of how when he was a baby in his mother's womb and Jesus came in, he leapt for joy. But that story doesn't prove anything, and he definitely doesn't even remember it. And Jesus, at this point, he was just a carpenter's son. He liked to hang out in the temple and talk religion, but Jesus hadn't performed any miracles. He hadn't made any public claims about who he was being the son of God. And at this point in the story, while John is out in the desert preparing the way, Jesus is still relatively a nobody. But faith comes before proof. We cannot operate in life without faith. Is this seatbelt going to hold? Is the time on my clock actually correct? Can I trust you not to betray me? Is my child going to make it home safe on the bus this afternoon? If we waited until we had certainty of all the questions in our life, we would never move forward with anything. Our lives are never filled with absolute certainty, and we have to trust the things that, over time, have proven themselves to be true, that they will remain true. Our lives are built on faith. There are a few things we can be absolutely certain of. The sun is going to rise, that E equals MC squared, and that Peyton Manning was the greatest quarterback of all time. I, oh, I just say that because Chris isn't here to defend Tom Brady. But, 
But John had an uncommonly huge amount of faith. Years after John pointing people towards the Messiah, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And this is the signal of the start of his ministry. And John witnesses as he lifts Jesus out of the water, a Holy Spirit descending from heaven in the form of a dove. And he hears a voice from heaven that says, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is about as clear of an indication as you can possibly get that John is, Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And John has now seen it with his own eyes. He has heard it with his own ears. He finally has proof. But his faith came before proof. Now, Ariaten has an unusual name, and I've never actually heard an, a name like this before. Um, I grew up at Capital City Christian Church. Many of you grew up in Catholic or Baptist or Anglican or Presbyterian churches, and all of those names mean something, and they all come with baggage, too. When Chris began Area 10 in 2008, he didn't want to be tied down by the preconceived notions of what a church is or should be. And so he chose the name Area 10 Faith Community. And that's because that's what we are. We're a community that is joined by our faith alone. And faith is, by its very nature, not something you can prove, but faith is something that you choose to believe, even when the final outcome is uncertain. Many of us are here today because we believe something that the rest of the world thinks is absolutely crazy. Christianity in 21st century America is no longer the norm. It is no longer implied, and people will actually write you off as being cruel or ignorant or hateful just for professing faith in Christ and all that they assume goes along with that. We don't gather here because we have irrefutable evidence, but because we believe. We have taken a leap of faith because we have felt the presence of the Lord in our lives, we have seen how these biblical truths line up with the way the world really works, and we have witnessed how God has worked in our own lives. Now, it is entirely possible that you might be here and you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but maybe you're curious, and maybe you're here to see what Jesus said, to see what Jesus did, but you don't believe yet. And that's okay. We're so glad that you are here, that this is a safe place for you to learn about faith and see if it's something that you want to try on for yourself. But I have to tell you, if you're waiting for 100% irrefutable, tangible evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, I, I don't have that for you. Because faith always comes before proof. But like a parent that holds their arms up to a child who wants to jump in the pool but is too afraid, I cannot prove to you that this faith is going to catch you. At some point, you just have to jump and see that the Father's arms are waiting wide open to keep you safe and to catch you. Because faith comes before proof. As we finally arrive in our main scripture here in Luke chapter 7, something has changed. Jesus is currently in the most successful part of his ministry. He is traveling around, people are following him, he's performing miracles, everybody loves Jesus. But John sends a message. 
He, sends, he asks his followers to go to Jesus. He says, calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, when the Bible repeats itself like this, it sounds a little weird to us, but it is kind of the author's way of saying, hey, look here, this part's important. John is a faithful and radical follower of God who preached about the coming of the Messiah before he arrived. He witnessed God's spirit resting on Jesus after baptizing him, and now he's not sure. Why is that? We know from the context of the other Gospels that are written about the same time period that the question comes to Jesus while John is in prison. John is being punished by King Herod for speaking out against the king, for divorcing his first wife, and then unlawfully marrying his brother's wife. It's weird, right? Herod's wife, whose name is Herodias, also weird, demanded that John the Baptist be thrown in jail, and he's been there for a while now. So when John says, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for someone else? This is a moment of vulnerability for John. There's a desperation here, a plea for reassurance. He has had his own very real, very tangible experience with Jesus, but his current situation does not indicate that Jesus or God are in control of the situation. He did a good thing. He called out evil on behalf of God, and now he's suffering for it. And John, who lived in the desert and ate locusts by choice, is in enough pain and misery to send a message to Jesus. Can you actually be trusted? Are you who you say you are? In a deeper sense, he's asking, are you worth all of this? And John, just like everyone else, had a picture in his mind of who the Messiah would be. And those expectations are not meeting his reality. When John saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus and a voice from heaven, it was easy to believe. But a lot of things have happened since then. And John has to be wondering, why would you perform all of these miracles and not save me? Aren't I your cousin? Aren't I the one who initiated you into your ministry? Aren't I the one who leapt in my mother's womb because I could feel there was something different about you? Aren't I the one who gave my life to God and listened to his voice and prepared the way for you to be successful now? I have always been there for you. Why aren't you here for me now? Maybe John's expectation was that once the Messiah was revealed, life would be easier. Maybe he thought once Jesus' ministry began, he could retire from preparing the way. He probably believed, like everyone else, that the Messiah on earth meant rest and peace and victory and freedom. And now he sits in a jail cell. John, who has actively followed God all of his life, is starting to experience doubt, possibly for the first time. Because unfortunately, doubt follows faith. This might not sound right to you. Doubt doubt is the enemy of faith, right? They're like mutually exclusive. But I, I have been wrestling with this idea, and I think that faith cannot exist without doubt. 
It's one of those seemingly paradoxical things, like light cannot exist without the equal and opposite presence of darkness. It's only because a truth of the universe is doubted that faith actually has to be required. The only reason we have to trust that our check won't bounce is because of the possibility that it might be overdrawn. The only reason any of us would ever sit behind the wheel of a car is because we believe that it is safe and it will take us where we need to go. But there's no guarantee that that is actually going to prove true. Therefore, because there is some level of faith, it requires Because there is some level of doubt, it requires faith. And so doubt is a natural part of faith. And at some point in time, we all experience it. I think that anyone who has never questioned God's goodness or doubted the existence of God is quite honestly still in a juvenile stage of their faith. And that's not a judgment against them. Thank God they have never had any real reason to doubt. But at some point, whether because of our own internal introspection or outward circumstances of life, there is a very healthy, reasonable space for each of us to to question what we have been taught. Eventually, we have to take the building blocks of faith that we were given by believers who loved us. We have to take them apart to see how they fit together. And we can never do that if we aren't willing to ask very hard questions. Now, the term deconstruction is kind of a buzzword these days. In a nutshell, it means questioning the assumptions of the faith that you grew up with, holding them up to your personal life experience, and hopefully the light of scripture, and seeing if they still ring true. Deconstruction is actually a very normal, common, and healthy practice as we grow from a young faith into a mature faith that understands and accounts for the complexities of life. However, as more individuals who lived very public Christian lives deconstruct their faith, they ask very hard questions without providing any of the additional support or encouragement of thousands of years of theological study and understanding. And when the spiritual guides of a generation continue down a path of deconstruction with no intent to seek out truth or return to scripture, what they are doing is demolition, not deconstruction. There is no intent to rebuild. And to send someone else, droves of other Christians, slaloming full speed down a dangerous mountain of doubt with no guardrails or central truths to cling to is not only dangerous, it's irresponsible. And if you're like me, you have watched as dozens of friends who used to be faithful believers walk away from biblical community, if not their faith entirely. And ultimately... They're left still searching for answers, but now they've stripped themselves of a community willing to help them try to find them. The truth is, when we're faced with the cruelty of the world, when we witness injustice, when those who have wronged us don't get what they deserve, our faith is shaken to its core. We have big, complicated questions that do not have simple, trite answers. And the easiest thing to do as we stare at this tangled, broken mess is to just walk away and believe the lie that there are no answers. When your life situation changes and you feel those doubts rise, 
How are you going to respond? It will happen if it hasn't already. Doubts can be powerful motivators if we allow them to draw us closer to God in seeking the answers to our questions and don't allow it to drive us farther away. This is what John the Baptist does when he's faced by his doubts. He goes to the source. He asks Jesus directly, are you who we have been waiting for? Here is Jesus' response. He replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And at first, it sounds maybe like Jesus is avoiding the question, but he isn't. The easy thing for any liar or cheater or con artist to do would be to just lie again. Why, yes, of course, definitely, absolutely am. you got to trust me. But Jesus doesn't just talk big talk. He points to the evidence. He says, look at what I have done. He's telling John to go back to the scripture of the promised Messiah and see what that scripture says the Messiah will do. He's pointing him to Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is Jesus' answer when someone brings their doubt directly to his feet. John is in prison, probably malnourished and beaten, and Jesus says, look at what I have done. Read the promises of God and see how I am the fulfillment of all of these things you have been longing for. Deeper than your current circumstances, I bring you life and joy and hope that cannot fade regardless of what happens to you. And this is the same response he gives to us. When you find yourself in a bad way, like John, look at what Jesus has already done. When you're overwhelmed by school or your job or you just don't know what God has for you next. When you're underemployed and things just keep getting more expensive and you don't know how to make ends meet. When you take yet another pregnancy test, so sure that you would be the best mom, and there's one line. When you get those test results back from the doctor, and the cancer's back. Remember, remember what Jesus has done. In the darkest nights of my soul, when I feel lost and alone and utterly abandoned by God, I have to look back at the trajectory of my life and where I should have ended up. And I cannot help but see through all of that pain that he was working for my good. I cannot help but witness how God has remained true to his word and actively worked throughout my life, even when I couldn't understand it at the time. 
in all of my darkest moments. I see how he has worked on my behalf, and I have faith that he will do it again. This is how faith triumphs over doubt. We stand on the promises of God and remember how he has proven himself to be faithful and true to scripture in our lives time after time after time. Now, when Jesus sends this message to John, there's another very popular Messiah prophecy that he could have chosen, also from the book of Isaiah in chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring you good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't use this prophecy for John? Jesus absolutely knows this verse. John absolutely knows it too. He's probably been repeating it to himself while he's in prison. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives, freedom for the captives, freedom for the captives. And I cannot prove this, but maybe this is some kind of coded message where Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, John, but you aren't going to be released from prison that scripture isn't going to be fulfilled this time. Jesus is telling John to throw away his expectations of the Messiah. John, like everyone else, like we all do, has had his own ideas about who Jesus should be. And in reality, Jesus has turned out to be something and to offer something very different. The reality of salvation And Jesus is not to release you from your current circumstances, but to bring healing and hope to people who are broken. John, he was never released from prison. Herod's wife, the one that John spoke out against him marrying, convinces his daughter to ask for John's head on a platter. And so the king, even though he doesn't want to kill John, presents it to her at a party. John beheaded. Matt Chandler says, the good news is not that if you follow him, everything is going to go well and everything is going to work. The gospel of Jesus is that you get him. He is enough no matter what circumstance comes. God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we want. Sometimes the answer is very difficult to hear. It might just be a wait, and it might just be a flat-out no. And I think this is most often because our idea of what we think is best for us and what God knows is actually best for us are two very different things. What we think will make us happy and what will actually bring us peace are not the same. There are things that children think are a great idea, like having candy for breakfast, or getting a pony to live in the backyard, or jumping off the roof into the pool. And we know that those things actually range from not actually that great for you to extremely harmful. And like children, we often ask for things that would do us harm. There are also lessons that we would never ask for that are extremely painful that we're much better off for having experienced. 
C.S. Lewis wrote, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best for us will turn out to be. At Area 10, we always try really hard to have a takeaway at the end of the message. We present scripture, we unpack it, and then we always try to ask the question, what can I actually do with this information? What does it change about the way that I live my life? And I'm afraid to say that when it comes to doubt, the simple answers aren't going to be much help. I could tell you, pray more, read your Bible, come to church more often, uh, join a serving team. And all of those things are great advice, and you should totally do all of them. But in the face of doubt, cliche tropes of faith are not going to work. That's not what John does, and that's not what Jesus asks him to do. In the midst of his doubt, John goes directly to Jesus with his questions. He doesn't rely on hearsay or interpretation, theological discourse, or what the public opinion is. He approaches Jesus as close as he possibly can, and he asks him, can you be trusted? So, my challenge for you is not to read a devotional where you hear what someone else's opinion about God is, but go directly to the feet of Jesus with all of your fears and your worry and your doubt. Lay them at his feet and ask him, can I trust you with this? And then, be quiet. Stay still for longer than you want to. Allow him to flood your minds with memories of times when you felt lost and alone and you could not see him in the moment. And look for him now. Was he there with you? Can you feel his warmth reassuring you? Can you see him giving you rest when you were so tired? Do you remember when the world was spinning out of control and you felt this unexpected twinge of peace? Can you see how he took something in your life that was dead and he brought it back to life? Do you remember that time where all of your carefully laid plans fell apart only to see years down the road that he had something better for you in store? And look to scripture. I'm not saying read your Bible because it's good for you. I'm saying do the work Dig in. Seek out the real answers to your deepest, hardest questions. God can take it. The Bible, it will hold up. Jesus, he is who he says he is. Don't be afraid. Look at what Jesus has done. That is your proof. And I challenge you to do this because I believe, I have faith, that God has been faithful to you in the same way I know he has been faithful to me. Again and again and again, God is faithful. Just look at what he's already done. And when you have those moments of faith, you can go directly to the feet of Jesus. And like one man said to him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. 
Abba Father, thank you for this faith community, for this space where we can come and enter and ask questions, where we can have doubts and be in a community where together we can try and find the answers. Lord, you have proven yourself faithful to us over and over and over again. And we know that whatever our life circumstances are now, that you are at work in those too. And even if we don't get the answers that we're hoping for, that you are still there with us, that you are still beside us, bringing us peace. God, I just ask that you overcome our doubts with the truth of who you are, that we will remind ourselves through scripture, through memories, through music, that you are who you say you are. In Jesus' name, amen.